Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. As I uh, recently discussed at our 25th anniversary event, the first topic that I wrote about on TechDirt where I was really, really passionate about it and really went deep on the issue and looking at all the different ins and outs was our broken copyright system. I had studied in school about the economics of information and the importance of the free flow of information, and that was not just the topic that I was most interested in early on, but also the one that TechDirt readers seemed to be most interested in as well. And it struck me as really interesting how many people sort of intrinsically recognize the problems of the copyright system, and yet it felt like nobody in power or nobody important was actually doing anything about it. Uh, Over the last few years, I haven't covered quite as much copyright stuff, though I do still cover it uh, quite frequently, but that's in large part because it's felt like many of the copyright battles had slowed down a bit, or perhaps it was just that some of the other battles around content moderation, privacy, net neutrality, encryption, competition, etc., had become even bigger stories. But copyright issues are still really, really important. There are still massive problems with today's copyright system and what it means for creativity and uh, also what it means for the free flow of information. Uh, Glenn Moody, who has uh, who's a longtime writer for TechDirt and for many other publications as well, has spent more or less the last year writing his latest book called Walled Cult- Culture. Sorry, I'll say that again. Walled culture, uh, which reminds us of just how broken the copyright system is today for both creators and for the public. Uh, The book goes through some of the history, including fights both won and lost, uh, regarding how legacy copyright industries have tried to harm the internet and gain ever greater control over the work of the actual artists and creators. Uh, The book, Walled Culture, just came out recently and is now available all over the place, and it is available under a Creative Commons CC0 public domain dedication, which is very exciting to see as well. So, Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. So uh, I, I feel like I should have had you on ages ago, and I just never got around to it. So I'm glad that we have an occasion to do this. Uh so I, I want to ask why why this book? Why a book about copyright now? Uh, in some ways, it feels like, you know, as I said in the intro, fewer people are kind of talking about copyright these days. Um, and uh, but you know, it, it is still important. So what what made you decide to write this book now? Yeah, it's an interesting perspective. You're saying that it seems to be sort of receding somewhat, but I think it is because, as you say, things have got worse <laughs> right, just about everywhere right. else. Because what's interesting for me in this context of this podcast is the consonance between what TechDirt has been doing for 25 years and what this book tries to do. And in fact, uh, if you look in the sort of notes, you'll find TechDirt crops up again and again. (laughs) And um, 
I was really struck by how when I was looking for background information or a confirmation about some vague idea I had, Tech Dirt had covered it. Um, <laughs> either you or I had generally written right. an article about it. And, and nowhere else has that depth of coverage. I'm just astonished. You know, when I'm looking at really obscure copyright stuff, Tech Dirt is the only place that has like a, you know, a kind of attack dog that just sunk its teeth into that subject and refuses to let go. And it's so impressive. And it reminds me why I love writing for Tech Dirt because, you know, the, the articles that you and your uh, you know, contributors have written really are the best of their kind. And I also think the Tech Dirt audience is the best of its kind because they actually care about this yeah. stuff. They know about this stuff and they tell you when you're wrong. <laughs> um, but anyway, to address your particular question, why now? Well, it really grew out of a failure. And, and the failure was four years ago, uh, no, five years ago, I wrote a blog um, called Copy Buzz, mm -hmm which was trying to get people to understand why the European Union's copyright directive was going to be a disaster. And I wrote this blog for two years. Um, it wasn't just me. It was interviews with a lot of experts, other people writing other articles. And we went through everything that was wrong with it, the directive, and all the problems that would arise from it. And as you well know, not least because TechDirt covered it again in great detail, we lost that battle mm -hmm. by the smallest of margins and possibly through some dodgy stuff happening with the voting system. And it was so symptomatic of copyright that despite the fact that, you know, we, many people could show why this was a bad idea, the politicians believe their friends in the copyright industry and the lobbying around it. I mean, one of the quotes in the book, um, actually from an MEP, she said this was the most fierce and unremitting lobbying she'd ever experienced for the copyright directive. And that, again, is symptomatic of the copyright industry. They are superb lobbyists. Yeah. You know, they're wrong on just about everything, <laughs> but their lobbyists are fantastic. So the book, if you like, is the background to that loss. And then one chapter is entirely about the copyright directive and how it passed only just – and then, in a sense, the book itself concludes with, well, you know, can we pay attention to what went wrong? Can we learn from the mistakes? And can we do something better in the future? Because copyright is getting worse. I mean, it's again, going back to your initial point, it's not the copyright has settled down. It's not too bad. It is worse. The copyright directive is the worst copyright law ever passed. The the upload filters, which mm -hmm. the, uh, readers know well about, is going to be disastrous. And the fact that it got through despite the evidence against it is really frightening. Yeah, and and it, this is worth sort of parsing a little bit for um, you know for listeners who are maybe not as focused on the copyright directive and sort of what's happened since it passed because it's been years since it passed. Um, and and the way and and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm perhaps not as familiar these as with all of this as you are. But you know the way the directives work is that the EU passes a directive, and then all of the different member states of the EU are supposed to pass sort of the local laws implementing it, right? And and That's my right, understanding yeah. is that the copyright directive, the upload filters part of it in particular, is is just so messed up that that nobody quite knows how to actually implement it. Is is that? That's right. And again, that was one of the interesting parts for me is to write the kind of after the failure. And you're absolutely right. Um, theoretically, 
all 27 members of the European Union are supposed to have passed laws implementing that directive. And only about half of them have done that uh-huh. for the very reason you say that it's sort of internally contradictory, the law. Uh, you're supposed to bring in the possibility of things like upload filters and yet somehow preserve people's rights, somehow make sure that people don't have legitimate content blocked. And so you've got an interesting contrast between France, which has always had the most extreme copyright laws, basically jettisoning every kind of protection for the end user and saying, well, you know, who cares? And Germany really trying very hard to reconcile irreconcilable ideas. And then you've got everyone else in the middle sort of just shrugging, saying, well, I don't know what to do. (laughs) Even the European um, uh, Commission, which is supposed to provide guidance on how to do this, its guidance didn't actually help and, in fact, included ideas which would have made the whole directive worse. Mm. So um, that's one of the reasons why I describe it as one of the worst, well, the worst copyright law, because it's almost impossible to implement in local national um, legislation. And uh, there's a deep irony about this because the whole point, allegedly, of the directive was to make copyright a fit for the digital world right. and uniform <laughs> across the European Union. And we are seeing the most diverse, contradictory laws being brought in in member states, such that we actually have a less uniform copyright situation in the European Union, thanks to a law that was supposed to do the direct opposite. Right. right. And is there, um, I mean, as the different states are struggling with it or, or implementing it in different ways, is there is there ever any opportunity for the for the EU or the European Commission to look back and say, "Oh, we made a mistake. Like, let's fix it"? Or does that <laughs> they not- never do that? The European Commission never makes mistakes. Mike. <laughs> I, I you, know, you must know that by now. <laughs> so, so what's going to happen is basically there are local battles already starting in each country. Mm-hmm. But until the legislation has been passed, it's very hard to, for example, challenge them in the courts. So what presumably will happen is that once the laws are passed in place and operating, then the local kind of digital rights organizations will challenge them. Right. And so what you may well have is that a lot of the local laws will actually be thrown out. Then you've got another question of, well, what happens then? I mean, given that it's proving impossible to actually find a way to do this. Um, I mean, this is going to be a very long process, so I don't hold out any hopes that the whole thing's going to collapse, you know, in a couple of years' time. It's probably going to take 10 years. But I think it will emerge ultimately as an impossible directive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one thing we've been talking about how, like, you know, it feels like copyright has sort of receded as an issue, but it's really just that everything else has gotten much worse and copyright certainly has gotten worse in some ways as well. You know, I, I do hear from some people. And, and so I just I would like your response to this argument that I hear from some people that basically say, you know, the copyright problems, piracy, whatever, have been solved. We have streaming now. We have subscription services. And so we've sort of worked all that out. The industries are making money again. And piracy is is less of a problem. And that's why we're not hearing about copyright anymore. I I don't think that's a fully accurate description of the world, but I'd like to hear your reaction to it because I've heard it. Well, it's very interesting you frame it that way. And I know it's not you framing it that way because what you've described is the big companies are fairly happy with the <laughs> large profits that they're getting. Right. And that, that for me, is a, as a, you know, a warning sign that there is something wrong. And, in fact, there are two main thrusts to the book Wall Culture. 
One of them is that copyright has failed because artists aren't being paid fairly. Right. The big companies are raking in huge profits because they're exploiting artists using copyright. So it's not that copyright is working. It has turned into um, a, a tool of oppression. And the idea that copyright is justified because it actually ensures that artists get paid fairly is actually demonstrably false. I quote various numbers that we know in terms of the, the average money that a, a writer gets or a musician gets. You know, they're, they're actually on the poverty line. Right. These people are struggling. The vast majority of creative uh, people are struggling to make a living. It may be fine for the, you know, the CEOs with their $200 million paybacks on that. And that may be the metric that they have for success and for copyright working. But it it isn't mine. And I I honestly don't think it's most people's. I think most people think copyright is about getting a fair uh, treatment of artists. And that isn't happening. So, I mean, it's very interesting that you put it that way because I think that shows that the companies are happy. But the artists certainly aren't. I I mean, it's it's funny because the the companies aren't even that happy because, you know, they're still pushing for for terrible copyright laws. And it's like, even even when, like, you look at at their own you know, revenue and profits. And you see that, you know, as you said, for the companies, not necessarily for the creators, the companies are making more and more money these days. And yet they're still going crazy and, and basically trying to demand payment for every every yeah. possible use and even, you know, realistically double and triple payments in some cases. Yep. And so, you know, it feels like, you know, as, as you said earlier on at the beginning, you know, they have tremendous lobbyists, but, but part of their you know, they're, they're, they have this sort of muscle that they exercise, which is like, pay me more, pay me more, pay me more. Yeah. Uh, and, and it just feels like, you know, even the, even where, you know, maybe on the, the large business side of it, they've, they've figured out a, a path forward. Um, they still want more and they still want to, you know, exploit. I think it's a good reason for that. Again, one thing I found very interesting in writing world culture was to go back really to the beginning of digital copyright, mm-hmm. not copyright, digital copyright, which was originally 30 years ago. And there is a fairly constant trajectory whereby however much the copyright industries are given in terms of legislation, they always want more. They have in their DNA this sense of entitlement that however much they have, they should have more. If you can think of any way to use copyright material that they're not getting paid for, they instantly want to be paid for that. So that, again, is is something I wanted to bring out, the fact that they will never be satisfied. They never are satisfied. And we shouldn't actually shrink from saying we need to go backwards from this position rather than saying, well, you know, you've actually gone off. We actually need to go back. Um, and the reason for that is the other main strand of the book, which is probably – a bit more abstract, but in some ways I think deeper, which is that I believe that copyright is fundamentally incompatible with the internet. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that, as you know, and as mentioned quite often in TechDirt, copyright derives from the Statute of Anne, which was drawn up in 1710. <laughs> you know, it's 300 years ago, and it worked pretty well for like 250 years but it was based on an assumption that making copies is hard. Right. It was the idea that, you know, if you make a copy of a book, you need a printing press. It's pretty pretty hard to hide printing presses. You just smash the printing press and ta-da, you've got rid of the copier. If you move forward to today, everyone has a copy machine on their desk, in their phone. There are now, you know, mm-hmm. 
a billion, five billion, ten billion copying machines. The internet is a copying machine. Copying lies at the heart of the internet. It lies at the heart of the digital world. It lies at the heart of the modern world. And it is fundamentally incompatible with copyright's demand to control every act of copying. Yeah. And that is something that people don't talk about. The, the businesses don't talk about, you know, copyright industry don't talk about it because it's a bit awkward. And most people don't talk about it because it's a kind of abstract way of looking at things. But I really think it's fundamental. Yeah. I mean, I'd even go a little bit further, which is like, you know, what we've seen when everybody has this copy machine in, in their pockets and, and everywhere is that it's it's actually, you know, all communications is in some form copying. Like that's the way communication works is that we are copying, mm. we're copying information. And so the idea, you know, especially, you know, you know, I, I find it amazing in, in the U.S. context. It's a little, I know it's a little different uh, elsewhere, but in the U.S. context where we switched in 1978 to a system where before, you know, we had what are known in the copyright space as formalities, which is that if you wanted mm-hmm. a copyright on something, you had to register it to in 1978, which is really not that long ago. It's just something where everything is automatically copyrighted or, or covered by copyright, if I want to be. Uh, specific on that and then it's just like 1978 is basically i mean depending on where you where you put the starting date like that's kind of you know around the same time as the beginnings of the internet as well so at that same exact moment (laughs) that, that we're creating this system to allow for vast copying across the globe we're putting in place this law that basically says any copying <laughs> breaks the law. Uh, yeah. And and it's weird that we've, we've, you know, for now the past 45 years or whatever, we've lived in this world in which both of those things are happening at once. And there's this sort of, you know, it's like a cogn- mass cognitive dissonance yeah. <laughs> where, yeah. where we're saying we have these laws and, and, you know, there, there was, there was a, uh, uh, there's an, a, another author, John Terranian, who's a, a, a law professor. Yeah, I quote him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. That's so great. Uh, you- yeah, where he basically says, like, everything that you do every day, you're, you're, you're violating copyright law technically, you know, 500,000 times a day. You know? Yeah, and he totted it up and it's $4 billion a year of infringement. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> for, for every person. So, you know, it, it's weird that we just everybody just kind of accepts this as as, yeah. as reality and and doesn't explore it and it's you know what what I like about your book is it sort of you know it lays it out there in a way that that you know people have been everybody's in denial about it yeah i want to put it in their faces and say look you know look at it what are you going to do about this contradiction because you've got to choose you know you either choose copyright or you choose the digital world you can't have both yeah Oh gosh, it's 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 really it's it's a weird thing that you know. As I said, you know, the book really really you know puts it out there and 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 makes it really really clear. Um, you know, and one other thing that I think the book also does really well is is it kind of highlights. You know, we we've already been talking about this, but we um a little bit, but I, I wanted to focus in on it as well, which is that you know so much of um you know. Of these fights, you have these the big businesses, right? Which, as we noted, are you know making their their profits from streaming services and whatnot. And yet, so much of the discussion, often from those same businesses, 
is is as if they're representing and and talking for the artists themselves and yet as you show the the artists are are really being exploited in in serious ways and and not being compensated fairly um even as all this stuff is being done in their name as if as if it mm. as if it is really all about them so uh, can you talk a little bit about that and and the ability yeah. to of 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 these businesses to really successfully pretend that they're the ones speaking for the artists when they're really the ones exploiting them. I think it goes back to the fact that until 30 years ago, nobody cared about copyright unless you're a copyright lawyer. Right. I mean, you and I would not have cared because we, did, we couldn't make copies. I right. mean, you know, we didn't have a printing press. And so what has happened is that people have grown up, and I, I see it all the time, you know, intelligent people in articles in national daily newspapers, there is this assumption that, you know, copyright works, copyright's fine, it's a bit technical, so we leave it to the lawyers. And they don't understand this point, which is just discussed, that we all create things covered by copyright every second we're online. We can't turn copyright off. It's just this automatic thing. And therefore, people haven't realized that this claim by large companies to represent the artist, which, again, hundreds of years ago may have been more reasonable because, obviously, if you need a printing press, then you need a publisher. You can't do it on your own. Mm -hmm. So I think people's mindset is still stuck in a kind of analog uh, way of looking at the world, and people need to have these you know, tiresome details sort of pointed out and then interiorized, and then they can start to think, well, that being the case, are these companies really speaking for these artists? And one of the interesting things uh, I know that Taylor has covered and I cover in the book also is the way artists themselves have realized they don't need these intermediaries anymore. Yeah. This whole disintermediation that the internet offers and the possibilities that they can take control of their own creativity. Whereas there was this assumption until 1980, 1990, that you had to find a recording company. You had to find a publisher. You, there is no other option, but there is an option now. And therefore, I'm very interested, and the book also is partly about that, the way that artists can start to just say, well, actually, I don't need those intermediaries. I'm going to take the 90% of the sales rather than the 10%. Right. And that's what's frightening for the intermediaries, of course, is that um, they need to reinvent themselves. And I think there is a place for them, but not the one they've got at the moment. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, because you know, in some ways – and and some people point this out when when I've raised that that same point they say well you know now they're just different intermediaries right now there's there's YouTube and Spotify and 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 you know whoever else you you want to talk about but the thing that that struck me is that in most cases and we're seeing some areas where that that may be changing um but you know if you compare what kinds of intermediaries they are, I think this this is just fascinating to me. You know, when you were talking about record labels or publishers or movie studios or or, or you know whatnot, um, you know, they really tremendously, very clearly acted as gatekeepers, right? You know, one, it was difficult to get to them in the first place. It was difficult mm. to get their attention in the first place. And then even if you did, they were rejecting, I don't know, you know, 90, 95% of the people who came to them. That It was like legitimate gatekeepers. There were only a very, very small number of of creators that they were bringing into the circle and, and uh, you know, allowing uh, to, to, to you know, publish, release, whatever um, their, their, their works. 
Whereas today there are intermediaries, but it's sort of the flip side of that, you know, to, to an extreme degree, which is that, you know, anyone can sign up for these services. Anyone can use them. Anyone can, can release their things. You know, there may be some cases where something gets taken down for, for this or that reason, but it's, it's a very, very tiny percentage. And so, you know, I, I've referred to it as like the difference between gatekeepers and enablers. So I'm, I'm not sure I'm fully comfortable with that distinction either. Mm. Um, but it strikes me as a really interesting difference that, you know, thanks to the internet and, and just the nature of like the internet enabling anyone to do anything <laughs> effectively, you, you've yeah. really flipped the script. And, and, and with that, you know, how the, 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 the economics play out, right? Because as you noted, with the, with the traditional, the old school gatekeepers, the creators were lucky if they could get 10% of the proceeds, right? I mean, you have all of these stories of, of, of record contracts where they give you a bunch yeah. of money up front and then that you just never get anything after that because they just keep billing against that. They, they act as if it's a loan and you never actually make any money. Um, whereas, you know, it depends on which service you're using, but but the cut that that the artist actually keeps from most of these other services is is on the reverse side of that ninety percent, ninety five percent, because of the flip, because of the the nature of of the difference, the difference between like an enabling intermediary versus a gatekeeper one. So sorry, that was mm. that's my rant. But, but did, did, no, no. <laughs> did, did you have any sort of commentary on on that? Yeah, I've got two yeah. comments on that. See, because another aspect, I don't think people appreciate. And again, I didn't. It's been very educative for me writing this book, as is often the case that you learn a huge amount by doing these things, is the extent to which industries allow 1% of their artists to make huge sums of money. Right. Because it lets them say, well, look, these people are making lots of money. You know, if you were better, you might get that money. (laughs) And so they're kind of token animals kept in the zoo that they can point to and say, well, they're fine. The system's obviously working. But if you do the numbers, you know, we know the 99%, the graph is flat and then you just kick straight up. Right. So, I mean, it's not that there's a nice steady increase of people earning more and more and more. Basically, you're either a pauper <laughs> or you're a star. And there aren't many stars because for the intermediaries, it, it would be inconvenient to have to manage thousands of them. So far better to have like 10 super, super, superstars, which are fantastic for your marketing sort right. of lies. Um, and they're easy to handle because you just basically assign people to deal with those 10 superstars so that skew and there's there's various things about the one percent um is i think really crucial to the current model and then as you say the fantastic thing about the the open internet model is that anyone can do anything and therefore there aren't these gatekeepers uh it's much more egalitarian in terms of you know if you find an audience then you will succeed i mean it's still hard to find audiences um, and the other thing which is implicit in what you were saying is that if you're getting 95% of the revenue instead of the 5%, you only need a 20th of the, the actual audience. Exactly. So it's actually much easier to be successful yeah. because you don't need to have, you know, 100 million people buying your, your music or your book, whatever. And again, it's, you know, we know, from, um, again, from many articles in tech that, that it's this barrier to entry which is crazy it's basically hollywood accounting it's basically you stack everything to make really expensive the things that don't have to be expensive but it suits the industry to be so yeah yeah 
and and that gets to you know and and you have a whole chapter in the book on this the the whole thousand true fans concept um you know which is which has been around for a while but we're we're really seeing you know when that was when that idea was first put out, I don't remember exactly when, like 15 years 2008, ago. 2008, Kevin Kelly. Put it out, I, I was so. pretty good when I said 15 years. That's <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So it was a Kevin Kelly concept and he just wrote, you know, wrote a post, a blog post that basically said, or an article that was like. Uh, it was a blog post. Yeah. yeah that, um, you know, if you have a thousand true fans, you can actually make a living. And and we're now seeing that start to show up in, in all sorts of different places. And people are realizing like, you know, and, and, you know, there are all different ways of looking at it. And, and it depends on what it is that you're doing and what, you know, what kinds of true fans you have and sort of how, how invested they are. Um, but, you know, we're, we're actually seeing that play out and everything that he said, you know, was true is is coming true so I, I think that's actually but it's coming i think it's coming true for a very interesting reason which is that 15 years ago there wasn't the associated infrastructure to support the true fans yeah now everybody knows about you know crowdfunding right I mean, people more and more people are happy to give you know ten dollars a month or just a lump sum of fifty dollars for something they care about so they're actually doing the true fans approach without knowing it yeah and so i think we now have all of that infrastructure in place such that artists can start saying well you know you're happy to give money to 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 pay for this super duper new bit of kit or something well why not you know pay me to write the next book that you're going right. to love or the next bit of music and I think more and more people say, yeah, you're right. I have actually done this. So what's strange about it? Whereas 15 years ago, they couldn't do that. I mean, they couldn't throw money at their favorite artists. Right. And you have to have basically the, you know, the kind of the spades and the equipment for the, the gold digging to be in place <laughs> before the gold digging is going to happen. Yeah. And and you said something really interesting there that, that, I, that I want to focus in on too, because I think it's important, which is, you know, you said, you know, paying them for, for the next... Thing that, that they're writing. And, and this is actually something that I think is really interesting, which is like the mentality of the copyright world is, is basically paying you for the thing that you already created. Whereas mm-hmm. the mentality of this and the thousand true fans is like paying you to continue to do the stuff that you do. And, and while that might not feel different, I think it's different in really important, like psychological ways, right? It's, it's about, you know, there is this, you know, and this is this is like, you know, one of the things that, that I love to, to focus on, like this idea of like things that that are out in the world that are just, you know, ideas that are copyable in in a world where we have everybody has copy machines like, you know, the, the natural economics are that those get priced down to free. But the things that haven't been created yet, you know. That's different, right? That's not out in the world. That can't be shared. And so people want- That's a great framing. Yeah, I haven't thought of it that way. I like that. People want to pay you to create it because because it can't be copied because it doesn't exist yet. (laughs) And so like the paying people to continue to create as opposed to paying them, I mean, admittedly, like the amount that people are willing to pay for you to create in the future may be more if you've had past successful creations because they, they support you and they recognize that and, and all of those things. But, but just as a mental model of thinking about it, I think it's, it is really different and different in kind of important mm. psychological ways. Like people feel better about, about paying people to create stuff in the future. And they, it almost, it also has like a, a, you know, um, it, there's a community aspect to it, which is like I helped get this created. Yeah, yeah. 
um, yeah. as opposed to just like, oh, I'm paying for this, you know, CD piece yeah, of plastic yeah. that somebody already did. Um, so I, I love your characterization. I was <laughs> definitely going to steal that. that Excellent. You know, you're, you're paying for something that doesn't exist. But two or three things in there. One is that the current model is really about consumerism. Yeah. It says we have these products, you must pay for them, yeah. which is the whole idea of, you know, piracy is bad because you're not paying for the consumer products, which keeps the world going. Whereas the other model says, you know, you support this artist, you, you want to have more of the things that they create. So support the artist to do that. And again, in the book, I use a, um, a metaphor, which I think is actually quite powerful, which is that of patronage. Mm-hmm. If you look at art creation through the ages, particularly, for example, you know, the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, the true fan was the most important way of commissioning. The true fan tended to be, you know, a king or an emperor or a pope. But it was a true fan who said, yeah, I love your work. You'd go and build me a palace or (laughs) pay me a huge painting. Here's an enormous sum of money. But they were just true fans. Right. And the exciting thing for me is that not only do we know patronage works because we have all the works of, you know, Michelangelo and all the others thanks to patronage, but with the internet, we have democratized patronage. Right. That you and I can be the king and the emperor and the pope in our own small way and get the same kind of kick out of supporting great artists that we love. And again, you know, I, th- I think internet is the reason why copyright is broken, but internet is also the reason why we can fix it using this kind of true fans approach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there was, there was another interesting aspect of the book um, that I, that we haven't really talked about that I wanted to just make sure we mentioned, which is, you know, um, lots of people are aware of like, you know, how copyright can be abused in all sorts of ways, um, including, you know, copyright trolling and everything. But, but, you know, in the book, you also mentioned something we, we've written about a couple times on TechTurt is, is the rise of copy left trolls as well. Um, do you want to just talk about what's, what's happening there? Cause I, I think it's a in, really interesting example. It, it is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's in a way that the poison of copyright spills over into the copy left world. So you've got people who are trying to do the right thing in terms of sharing their artistic creations. And one of the ways they typically do that is to use Creative Commons licenses, as you say, as I've done for for the book itself. I use the absolute minimalist, Mm -hmm. (laughs) no rights reserved. Um, But some people obviously want to keep some rights for various reasons. You know, one can respect that. Um, But it turns out that one iteration of the Creative Commons licenses had this kind of legal bug in it, such that if you didn't comply with the terms completely, you lost all your rights to use an image. That was fixed in the next iteration. But the danger is there are millions, possibly hundreds of millions of things out there, typically images, which have been released under this version three of the uh, CC BY license, which means that if you don't give exactly the right uh, attribution in exactly the right form, then you are technically in breach of that license. Right which means that technically you have no license to use that image and therefore technically you can be sued for infringement. And the, and the copyleft trolls have spotted that. And they, in a sense, they've seeded the world with some of these um, version 3 CC images. 
And then as soon as anyone uses them trying to comply with the license but missing off a full stop or some trivial element, they pounce and say, well, you actually have no right to use that. I'm going to sue you. And, you know, in the States, it could be 250,000. I lose track of how many zeros it could be. <laughs> anyway, but because these these trolls are generous, they say for a mere $1,000, you know, I'll let you off this time. Yeah. And, and it seems to be so symptomatic that you, know, you get people trying to do the right thing, trying to be generous um, with their images and people trying to use those images in the right way. But because of copyright law that's underneath the copyright uh, Creative Commons licenses, they still get caught by the kind of traps within. So it's it's really sad, I think, that that has happened. Yeah, yeah, no, I, it's it's been sort of a you know, upsetting thing, but you're right. I mean, it, it just, it is kind of demonstrating the, the underlying problems of copyright itself. Um, and so, you know, as, as we've mentioned, and as, as you just mentioned again, with the book, you, you went with the CC zero, which is technically not, not even a license. Um, it's, it's a public domain dedication. Um, and there are all sorts of like, you know, you could go deep into the weeds as to why it's technically not a license versus dedication. Mm. But um, so I, I wanted to know sort of what was your thinking? We we try and do that with everything that we produce at, at, at TechDrain, anything that's, you know, larger. We, we try and do it as CC0 as much as we can. Um, but what was what was the thinking on your end behind doing well, that? Well, there's uh, really two things. One is I think it would have been a bit hypocritical for me to <laughs> slap on a heavy copyright license when I'm saying that copyright is bad. So... I, I think that, you know, um, I was forced to, to that move. And in fact, is what I would have wanted to have done anyway, because what I really hope is that people will take that text and in particular make translations of it. Mm. Um, you know, the fact that people normally have to ask permission and then sort of haggle about the rights of translation is such a barrier. You know, I would love it if, you know, maybe somebody set up a wiki and just threw the English text on there and people just collaboratively turned it into other languages. The point is, you know, people can come up with clever ways of using the text and I want that to happen. So it seems silly for me to put barriers in the way. And indeed, it would be symptomatic of the problems of copyright. The fact that it it stops things being shared, it stops knowledge spreading, it stops people having access to knowledge. So... Uh, hopefully by doing this, even though it's it's still unfortunately a little bit strange for people when you tell them you've done it, right. hopefully you know, more and more people will get happier with that kind of approach and will say, yeah, I'd like to use that or, you know, to take a chapter and do something with it. Or, I mean, you know, I hope that people will just go to town on it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's kind of exciting. And, you know, it's interesting because I know like, so you were, you were able to work with a, with a publisher who, who appreciated and supported that. Um, so it's, the whole thing is a bit unconventional. So the publisher that we have um, is essentially our own publishing Got house. It. So it's the, the people I've been working with in Brussels who I work with, on this previous blog, the, the one we failed on, this mm -hmm. copy buzz. So th they asked me to do another blog around this kind of whole area. And so they are the, the publishers, and so, so we are sort of self-publishing. Got it. Um, and therefore, that really isn't an issue. And in fact, it's, it's quite interesting. It'll be very interesting for me because the books are actually printed by Amazon. Mm -hmm. So they're printed on demand. So we don't even have a warehouse full of books. They just don't exist. It's a completely virtual publishing house um and that's worked really well because it, it's meant that we've kept the cost right down so the cost 
of the printed version is only seven or eight dollars or something, which for a three hundred page uh, paperback, I think is quite reasonable. So even the the analog version is as cheap as we can possibly make it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we went through something similar when we did the the uh, working features, the the sort of uh, science fiction scenarios about the future of work, where we you know we we had we had spoken with publishers. Um, and in fact, we had gone fairly deep with with one publisher who who was um, you know thoughtful about copyright issues. I'll, I'll say, um, and and had actually been in some some you know unfortunate copyright battles around fair use. And so they were they were really interested and kind of open to us experimenting. But you know, in the end, we said, yeah, you know, we can we can do a whole bunch on our own. And that gets back yeah. to everything that we've been talking about today, where you know you don't need those those intermediaries in, in that way you can find other ones where you retain the control and you have the ability mm. to do stuff um and so you know it's exciting that that you guys are are going down the same path with it and 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 finding um, however one, one thing i think is worth emphasizing is that this doesn't mean that intermediaries will disappear completely right. i actually think there are important roles for it and i think you can see that probably most clearly in the world of academic publishing mm-hmm. which is something that Tech Dirt has written lots about, I've written lots about. And it's extraordinary because, uh, as you know, and, and most of your readers know, you have the situation where academics write a paper, an academic paper, as part of their job. Yep. And then they offer it to an academic publisher for free. And then the, the academic publisher gets referees to look at that paper to judge whether that's worth publishing. And they also do it for free. Right. And then very often the editor of the journal is also working for nothing because it's all a part of their job in the industry. So you have material that is edited and chosen entirely for free. And then the the academic publishers put that together in a a journal and then they might charge, you know, $10,000 a year to access that (laughs) journal. So it's the most extraordinary business model. And so – it's not really surprising that some of them have managed a profit margin of 40% consistently, right. which is just unheard of. Yeah. So obviously, you know, I think that should stop. Um, <laughs> and the, the open access is something that is, you know, seen as the way forward. What's sad is that the publishers being quite clever have managed to subvert open access. So they've actually turned it around such that they are the open access publishers and they're still making 40% profit margins yep. from open access. And so basically there's a kind of extreme form, as you know, of open access called diamond open access, which is a kind of minimalist open access, which doesn't charge people to read uh, any of the articles. And it also doesn't charge the uh, academics to publish, which is the other way the model works. However, um, I still think there's a place for publishers and I have a slight advantage because I used to be a publisher. In fact, I used to work for Elsevier, which is ah, um, I didn't the biggest know academic publisher of <laughs> all. Um, and uh, I really think they are just being lazy. You know, there is plenty uh-huh. of scope for a publisher to add value to things that are provided completely free of charge. So basically, you just go up a level from just the, the basic kind of academic material. And they're already starting to do that. But they want both. I mean, they're providing all kinds of add-on services, which I think is definitely the way it should go. But they're doing that as part of their stranglehold on academic publishing. So what it means is they own the entire ecosystem um, from you know recruitment of academics through to finding jobs, through to 
suggesting research topics. I mean, it's just terrifying how these a few, you know, it's an oligopoly. A few publishers now essentially own the academic world, yeah. and I think that the, the solution is in there. But they've they've got to let go of the bottom bit, which is what they use to actually give them the control of the rest. And so there is a role for intermediaries in these added value services. And more generally, I think in publishing and in particularly the music world, there's all kinds of really exciting things you can do without having to rip off artists and you know, make them commit to copyright based uh, contracts that see them, you know, impoverished essentially. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, it's, it is definitely a big issue and it's amazing to me, you know, there, there are sort of, you know, cracks here and there in the, in the academic publishing space, but for the most part, you know, it's, it's incredible how, how well that's held up. And, and one element of that too, by the way, which, I mean, you, you laid out how they're doing the work for free. Everybody involved is doing everything for free and then they're charging ridiculous sums. The one thing you left out, which makes it even crazier is that, an, uh, you know, certainly not all of it, but a large percentage of that research is often paid from, from public grants. So, yep. you know, public yep. money is paying for that research, you know, all of it's being reviewed for free. And then it's locked up under these, these crazy, crazy expensive terms. Um, it's Also, one other thing I didn't mention, yeah. which we should mention, is that the academic publishing houses usually insist that the authors assign the copyright yes. to them. Yes. <laughs> so not, not content with just making huge amounts of money, they then take control of the work of yeah. academics, which is the big problem because academics can't even share their own work now. Yeah, and, 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 and I, I know I've mentioned this before. I don't know if I've mentioned it on the podcast or, or in writing um, that I, I had a conversation with a, with a professor, a friend of mine. This was a few years ago, and they were talking about how they had, they had published a paper and then they were doing effectively a follow-on paper. But because of the copyright situation in which they had assigned the copyright on their first paper, they were not allowed to use the same information from the first paper and basically had to do a whole new uh, you know, experiment uh, you know, yeah. in order to recreate the research they had already done. It completely yep. wasteful. There was no reason for it other than they said that the, you know, because their, the original publisher on, on an earlier paper wouldn't let them reuse it. Uh, because they had given up their copyright on it. And it's just like... Again, I think people just need to know about this because yeah. once you explain this to people, I mean, they are shocked and possibly right. angry and quite justified, but they don't know. They they seem to assume, well, why wouldn't they? That, you know, the academic publishing world is fair and right. that obviously the people that write the papers, they're, they're their papers. I mean, they don't know quite how evil the academic publishing world has become because it's kept all very quiet. Yeah. And again, they have a tremendous lobbying hold on governments. Again, one of the things uh, I wrote about in uh, Wall Culture were the crucial early years of open access mm -hmm. and the mistakes made by governments and funders. Uh, in particular, there was one moment when they were sort of starting to draw up policy and they could, the funders, the ones actually paying for the research, which are from these big organizations like the Wellcome Foundation and uh, similar ones, they could easily have said, we are going to fund this. We want it to be open access. Oh, and by the way, there's going to be absolutely um, no embargo. So as soon as the article is published, it's freely available. Right. And somehow... The, the lobbyists managed to twist the arms of government to say, well, actually, you can have a six-month or possibly 12-month embargo because the poor publishers might suffer. Right. But 
the point was the pub, uh, you know, as you just said, it, this was paid for by these organizations. Right. They paid for it, so they could have said, as a condition, no embargo. But you know, they were bamboozled into accepting this compromise of six months, twelve months, and we're, we're still stuck with it. It's still a battle twenty years on, yeah, trying to get rid of that embargo. Well, they they just it's extraordinary. It, it, the exciting thing was in the U.S. the the White House just announced about a month ago. That they were they were reversing that policy. They used to have a, a yep. one year embargo on things, and now the White House announced that every but it's twenty twenty two. Yes, yes I, mean, I know. I it's know. taken twenty years to do this. I know. I know. <laughs> it's all all si- kinds of crazy. One other point. Like, there's so many things we could talk forever. I know on this, but like one other thing that you just raised that, that I wanted to just highlight because I, I think it was important. Where you kind of, you said something, and, and just this gets beyond just the academic thing. Where you're like, most people assume that it works in a way that is sensible and and people naturally do that and we see that in all aspects of copyright right like there is this natural thing that people assume incorrectly under the law that copyright must work this other way you know you see people assume like this kind of use must be fair use because like why would this why would you have to pay for yeah, something be unreasonable otherwise right and and all sorts of little things that everyone assumes that, that the law must act in one way and and it's it's really interesting to me where you look at what what the things that people do, whether you know, just sharing something among friends or family or whatever, um, which technically is probably infringement, but you know, everybody and, and if you look at sort of where we're heading, you know, where like the more sensible way that all this works, it's exactly the way that everybody assumes it should be working. It's it's really mm. noticeable. You know, I, I think of uh, you know, th- there's a famous image of like, you know showing like a, a a sidewalk and and a sort of you know grassy area and you can see where everybody's walking across the grass and somebody like tries to put up a fence to block it and people are still going around it you see where people go right people go where the natural places to go are and the, the right thing to do is like you know enable that you know <laughs> allow the the you know build a path there where everyone is going and we're you know we're we're sort of we're not getting there with copyright. Like copyright continues to try and block the path that everyone's going because everyone just intrinsically assumes this is the way it should be. And there's, there's another really harmful aspect of that, which is that when people find out they're not allowed to do that, that it's illegal, they do it anyway. So there's this disrespect for the law, which is being created by copyright, because as you rightly say, people think, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to obey that law because it's so stupid. And so you're starting to, you know, perpetuate the idea that laws are optional. Right. And, you know, I think in society that's a very dangerous thing to do. And copyright is one of the main ways in which people have this attitude that it's a kind of optional, I might follow it, but if it's inconvenient, I won't bother. Yeah. And so I think that's another reason why, you know, copyright can't stay as it is because it's it's actually causing a lot of damage to the kind of basis of society. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is just, it's fascinating. I, I always enjoy talking with you. The, the book is excellent. Uh, you know, as we said, and, and you can get a hard copy for very, very cheap. If you go on Amazon, um, there are, you can get, you know, last I checked, the Kindle version was was even free. So that's that's available for free. And because it's CC0, there, there, are, there are copies around that you can get. It's uh, it's an excellent book. It's It's you know, it's uh, as you would expect from, from from you and all your writing. Hopefully, people who are listening to this have have read 
uh, Glenn's work on on TechDirt as well, and 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 other publications also. Um, but but thanks so much for for doing this, for for writing the book, for putting it together. It's such a it's it's a great book. It's worth reading. Uh, obviously, for anyone who liked this conversation, there's a lot more of that <laughs> uh, in the. Well, thank you for TechDirt because it wouldn't have been possible without TechDirt. <laughs> say it draws so much on your work in the last 25 years. So thank you, Mike. Sure, sure. Absolutely. No problem. All right. Uh, and so, yeah, once again, thanks. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and dig up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get To grab a shovel and dig up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get To grab a shovel and dig up the